welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim, and we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking, indeed. I would love to debunk my voice. It is not a ghost. It's just a cold, and it's I sound cold. terrible, and I'm sorry, listeners, that you have to deal with this vocal fry that is not intentional and just from a sore throat. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, friends, you got to deal with this this whole episode. Um, <clears throat> hello, we are here to talk about uh, a fun topic that's not actually fun. Actually, I will take this back. I found this topic to be fascinating, um, mainly because uh, I, I think something that, Kim, you and I both have kind of really, like, talked about on our own, not necessarily even on the podcast, just, like, mm-hmm. been interested in general, is yeah. how, like, cold cases are brought back to life, pun intended, mm-hmm. but, like, with DNA, with technology now, and with... I mean, the internet, right? Just there's oh, yeah. so much more technology these days that, like, so many people can, like, willingly give their time to solve a crime. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be with law enforcement. And I, like, I'm sure a lot of people listening to our podcast are interested in this type of stuff, too. But we've never really formally covered anything, I think, that has been in that realm. And instead of doing another weird, (laughs) wonky episode about pants or a curse or, um, I don't know, mermaids. We're not talking about mermaids, I promise. (gasps) We should add that to our list, though. To do at some point. We should absolutely add that to our list. But instead of talking about something super, like, fun and wonky and weird or, like, bizarre, like aliens... um, we're actually going to be talking about missing and murdered indigenous women today. Um, and <clears throat> this is a trigger warning for anyone who doesn't want to listen to anything about true crime or um, there will be some crime scene vague descriptions. I'm not going to get into like details of stuff. Um, but uh, just a heads up, uh, this episode is going to be speaking specifically to Two different cold cases um, and the way that technology has been brought into it recently to help try to solve um, both of these, um, successful or not. But um, and and the story of, you know, a a woman who was really passionate about figuring out what happened to her aunt. So I'm just going to start off by saying Missing and murdered Indigenous women is an epidemic in the United States and Canada that leaves families without answers or justice for their loved ones and without enough recognition, acknowledgement, support, keep going um, from law enforcement in investigating or solving cases or even taking them seriously or treating them with the same respect that other cases get. Uh, This is a quote. In so many of these cases, it's the family that finds their loved one. That does the search to find their loved one because law enforcement doesn't participate or doesn't feel that it's a priority or makes excuses based on generally accepted stereotypes about Native people, unquote. Native women who live on reservations face a murder rate that is as much as 10 times the U.S. average 
And homicide is listed as the third leading cause of their deaths, according to the CDC. Um, and according to the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada, between the years of 1980 and 2012, Indigenous women and girls represented 16% of all female homicides in Canada, while uh, constituting only 4% of the female population in Canada, mm. which is just like bonkers. Yeah. There's a documentary called Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women, a National Operational Overview, uh, and it found that more than a thousand indigenous women were murdered over a span of 30 years. Mm. <clears throat> In the U.S., Native American women are more than twice as likely to experience violence than any other demographic. One in three indigenous women is sexually assaulted during her life, and 67% of these assaults are perpetrated by non-indigenous perpetrators. This doesn't get enough attention. I'll just say it right now. Um, one of the things that is important to acknowledge here is that we want to draw more attention to it just by talking about it on this episode. Um, this also brings me to a Samson Cree national named Violet Suse and her search for her missing aunt for 40 years. Mm. We'll also discuss two Jane Doe cases in a search for their identities, as I mentioned earlier, and how DNA helped provide some answers to who those women were. So let's talk about these cold cases first. We'll go to uh, Violet in a bit. Um, but I actually used a couple of different resources. I love watching a documentary. I don't know what it is, just about the like hearing from the actual people that these things happened to and the people who actually worked on the cases and as a visual learner, I like to see a person and hear them talk about what what they learned, what they went through. And there is an episode on um, the Web of Death on Hulu, episode four. It's called California Dreamin' about this topic. And there was also a Cold Case Files episode recently that came out about this in 2022, last year. Um, so this is all with fairly recent information, but what really caught my eye <clears throat> and my attention with this, besides the fact that Indigenous women are so strongly affected by these things and not resolved, is the fact of the location of where these particular crimes took place. So some of you might know I'm from Southern California originally. Kim, you know this. I do. Um, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, uh, you know, lived there for a good chunk of my life. Moved around a bit, lived in Santa Barbara for a while, went to shows in Ventura, uh, you know, hung around the Southern California vicinity all the way down to like Anaheim, Disneyland, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I generally know the area and I like to think that I've known about a lot of the famous, and that's the whole point of famous, um, mm -hmm. cases that have come up in that area. And I've never heard about these. Um, surprise, surprise, Jane Doe in Southern California. So first, let's discuss the first case. This started July 15th, 1980. Kern County sheriffs were called to an almond orchard off mm -hmm. Highway 99. Oh, my gosh, I'm turning into a Pacific Northwest person. I didn't say the. Off the Highway 99. Um, outside of Delano, 
which is right near Ventura, California. Um, this was a fully clothed female. She had no ID. There was no indication of where she came from. And she became known as Jane Doe Kern County Number 5. The only evidence... Uh, that was found in the vicinity was a beer bottle that was on the ground, a pack of cigarettes, and tire tracks on the ground. Investigator Bill Haker said that some of the detectives on the scene said her facial features resembled Native American features. So the autopsy showed that she was stabbed 28 times. Her blood alcohol level was 0.3. Kim, you drank alcohol. What does that mean? <laughs> Zero. Point three. Uh, well, Gabby, that is, uh, I mean, the legal alcohol limit to drive, at least in, in Washington state where they are um, talking about adjusting it still, but it is 0. 0.08. Ah, so 0. 0.3 means intoxicated. 0. 0.3 means, I mean, I don't know at what point alcohol poisoning starts kicking in, but 0. 0.3 is like, you're not going to remember the next day. Significant. So that was um, her alcohol level. Her blood alcohol was at 0. 0.3. Um, and the medical examiner felt that this was a forced assault. She was wearing a pink top, jeans, blue socks, and white shoes. And in examining the body at the scene, uh, the examiners noticed that her sneakers were pristine. They were perfectly white. There was no blood on them whatsoever, which means that she had to have been murdered laying down. So mm -hmm. she wasn't standing up. If she was standing up, there would have been blood on the bottom half, right, and on her white shoes. Mm -hmm. So they also presumed that because there were just tire tracks around and there wasn't any blood on that bottom part of her body, that she was probably killed somewhere else and then dumped in the orchard. Mm. She was presumed to be about 25 to 35 years old um, and had an estimated uh, height of five foot four mm -hmm. and was about 115 pounds. Um, they also noted that uh, it, it was believed that she had given birth at least once. The coroner division chief for the Kern County Sheriff Coroner's Office, Don Ratliff, stated that the cause of death was multiple stab wounds and there was evidence of defensive wounds. Um, she also had been raped. Swabs were taken of semen for evidence. And the evidence was preserved from the body in a freezer. Now, this is 1980. There's no DNA yet, right? Um, there's no, no internet yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, so. Well, but yeah, very, DNA, not how DNA, we have it. <laughs> DNA was not, uh, like, they would, take, they would take swabs of things, but, but DNA evidence was, was not something that was uh, reliably being used or tested anywhere, yeah. Yet is the key word. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, another thing that they noted was that when they fingerprinted her, there were no fingerprints on file. They could not figure out who this was. Um, and no one had come forward to claim her. They figured, you know, this is a young woman in the area. There's got to be a family looking for her. Nobody yeah. came forward. Um, now, this might ring a bell for you, Kim. 
mm-hmm. because I know there are certain things that mark a, uh, <laughs> a case that make you stand out like, ah, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, she had two unique tattoos. One was a heart having the words, I love you. Mm-hmm. And above it, it said Shirley. Mm-hmm. And below it, it said Seattle. Yeah. She had another one. It said mother and I love you on it. Mm-hmm. Does that ring a bell at all for you? It, it does. Uh, and and I, uh, not, not as well as it probably should, but I recall because it, a story ran um, on, on King 5, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, I remember, if I'm recalling all of this correctly, mm-hmm. um, the news story was airing because, and this was a, a couple years ago, but because they had convicted someone of her murder, but they hadn't identified her, and so they were sharing this information in hopes of identifying her. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that checks, and uh, I, I will touch on that in just a bit, but I love, I love when you know the stuff I'm talking about. It makes me happy. Um, well, it, I, I mean, it, I guess for me, too, I, I think part of why it stuck out in my mind is I thought... Great. You could, I mean, like, I'm glad they caught the guy who did it, but you still can't identify the person who was murdered. Like, are you kidding me? That was mm-hmm. such a wild detail to me that that was part of what made it really burn itself in my brain. Well, it's um, frustrating. Like, it's, it's super, it's super frustrating to, frustrating. like, figure out that you can catch the person who did it, but you can't figure out who it was done to. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to make you more frustrated because okay. there's two of these we're going to talk about. And they both mm. have the same kind of situation. So God. let's get through the first one first. Okay. Then I'll get you extra angry on the second <laughs> one. Yay. Yay. So anyway, she had these tattoos. Um, one said Seattle. Also, anytime I hear a story that has to do with Southern California and Seattle, I'm like, I got to cover it. So mm-hmm. like, here we are. Um, she also had scars on her abdomen and on her buttock. She also had worn a leg prosthesis, believed to have Mm. been um, as a result of an injury that had occurred on her upper leg. Mm. Um, Now, the detectives that were originally on this case followed every lead they could get, and they had nothing. They had no hits. Again, 1980, no internet. So their approach was making media appeals for identity purposes and Mm -hmm. just reaching out and seeing, does anybody know... This person, this is what we found, right? If you have any information, please come forward. And the media appeal brought forward a tip from a woman named Pixie in Bakersfield. Also, like, not surprising. Um, sorry. sorry I, there's too many <laughs> Bakersfields. So for a minute, my mind California. Was, yeah. No, that makes more sense. Yep. Pixie in California makes more sense. Um, yeah, that tracks. They, this person, Pixie, was asking if the victim had a tattoo with a heart that said Seattle on it. She thought it was a waitress from a bar in Bakersfield, and this waitress was named Becky Ochoa. Okay. That was the only thing that came in about it, Becky Ochoa. There were no other leads to support that. Mm. Mm. It didn't go anywhere. Uh, It kind of stopped at that detail. But these detectives are curious about the tattoos, right? So they decide to go to a tattoo shop in Bakersfield and inquire about the tattoos that they found on the body. The person working this random tattoo shop, which also just like, I feel like in in some cases, my investigative skills might have been better than these people's because I'm like, you're just going to choose a random 
Tattoo shop? Did you go to all the tattoo shops? How many people did you talk to? How many people's words are you going to take seriously? You're just asking one random tattooer a question and going with it. Like, anyway, I I digress. I also think it's it's such a great example, though, of how little care was kind of being used and, and attention was being even given to the case. Yeah, that's actually very valid. And also just... Maybe they didn't think it was a lead worth following. Sure, too, sure. Right? And I like, mean, I understand there's manpower limitations. Sure. But. <laughs> but. So they ended up talking to this one dude at one tattoo shop in Bakersfield. And this guy said that the style of the tattoos looked like Skid Row tattoos from downtown L.A., so mm. I think we've actually talked about Skid Row a really long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really downtrodden part of downtown LA. There's a lot of homelessness Down there. On Skid Row. Yeah, no, it's not fun. Um, it's. I it's, mean, we have like, we have our own Skid Row in we Seattle. Have Skid Road. We have the original Skid Road in Seattle. Yep. This yeah. is Skid Row, like R O W. It's a. Well, it's, yeah. uh, it's they're they're interchangeable. For sure. Anyway, they said it was the style of that type of tattoo from Skid Row downtown LA. Um, and I guess at the time there was a higher population of native people in that area. Mm. I didn't know that. Mm. Sure. Um, I just know it's a higher population of people who don't have homes, um, and are, are very less fortunate. So, um, anyway, January 28th, 1981 detectives go to LA to investigate the tattoos and the tattoo people in the L.A. area are like, yeah, no, not from here. Sorry. Mm. Uh, and that was a bit of a dead end. Didn't go anywhere. So by the end of 1981, the case went like fully cold. Um, now, sidebar. This is just a fun little sidebar. And I think maybe this is when you saw the news report of what you're talking about. In 2003, um, the Kern County Cold Case Unit say that 10 times fast. The The Kern County cold case unit was established um, and they pointed out that no one ever went to Seattle to check out tattoo shops in Seattle to see if someone could identify this tattoo from Seattle since it said Seattle on it. Yeah. Um, and so they went to Seattle, but then nothing came of it. <laughs> so that, like literally like... Well, and I will Nothing say that happened. wasn't when I saw because I wasn't living in Seattle then. I was living in New York. Oh, okay. Never uh, mind. No, this, this was more recent. This was. Oh, um, you know what? You're right. It was recent because if you're saying it was after the guy it got was after caught, the guy we'll got, got that convicted, which, which yeah. was, has been within the last like. We'll get there. I promise. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. it's been within the last like five, seven years, if I'm recalling correctly. But I take it back. Yeah. Never mind. So you didn't hear about it in 2003, but they did come here in 2003. No, no, no. I, believe, I, just, I was like, that's, that's, my memory's good. It's probably not that good. No, it's okay. <laughs> and my memory is then. awful. So <laughs> you've got a one up on me. So that's basically uh, the Kern County Jane Doe case in, in its entirety of everything that everybody knew up until that point, up until right. 1981, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, the date for that was July 15th, 1980, right? Mm-hmm. July 18th, three days later, 1980, at 12.35 p.m., there's a 911 call about a mannequin lying in a parking lot in the parking lot of Westlake High School. Mm. That is in Westlake, California, near Thousand Oaks, where I worked at the Urban Outfitters when I was 19 years old. Like, I know that area very well. One of my really good friends got married there in February. Not February. April. 
this last year. I'm very familiar with that area. So when I heard about Westlake, I was like, wow, close to home. Anyway, it, uh, fun fact, was not a mannequin. It, it never is. It's never a mannequin, guys. Ventura County Sheriff's Department was called out to the parking lot, and they find a body of a woman with no purse, no ID, no jewelry. She had stab wounds on her chests and arms, and there were bloody drag marks up the hill that hinted that the body was dumped there. Mm. Um, and her shoes were thrown up that hill as well. Um, they thought that she was Latina, ages around 25 to 30, but couldn't really put their finger on it. Uh, at that time, obviously no DNA yet. Same time zone as time zone time period mm-hmm. as the other one. And all the investigators really could do uh, was interview people who were actually at the football game nearby at Westlake High School. Um, and they took photographs of the scene. And outside of that, there wasn't much they could really do. So there was an autopsy that was conducted later that day. There's a couple of different um, pieces of information on this one that were conflicting when I was researching this. One said there were 23 physical injuries. One said there were 29. There were a lot. We'll just say there were a lot. Uh, There were 13 stab wounds. Uh, There was evidence of forced sexual assault. Mm. And she was three months pregnant. Ah. Mm. Yeah. She also was stabbed on her arms. She had uh, defense wounds. So she was trying to defend herself when she was stabbed there. Mm. She would become known as Jane Doe Ventura County. Um, And her fingerprints also were run no matches. Literally like same thing as the other one. Mm. Um, There were missing person reports scanned from several states, the surrounding Mm. areas, They couldn't find anybody that resembled this person or sounded like this person that was missing. Mm. And the case went cold really quickly because they just didn't have very much. And what's wild is that because even though like three days later and these areas are actually like really close to each other, they're in Mm. two different counties, but like counties can be right next to each other, right? They just have different people running the investigations in each county and they don't necessarily talk Mm. right away. Right. Uh So both of these things happen. Um, The evidence is not great, super limited to like report writing, photographs, talking to people, no DNA uh, testing at least. And what's nuts is that because they were in separate counties, neither county knew about each other's situation at the time. So even Uh though these cases were so similar, days apart, they didn't know about each other. Wow. Um, which is like bonkers to think about, right? Hmm. So those are the two s- stories of the cold cases, okay? So mm-hmm. we're going to kind of take a step back from when that happened. Around the same time, we're going to move up north. We are going to uh, the Samson Cree Reserve in Mask. I-, I always mispronounce this. I'm so sorry. Masquachis, I think that's how you pronounce it. Masquachis, Alberta, Canada. Um, where it's the Samson Cree Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone went missing around this time. This was a very, and is a very close indigenous community. The population was about 20,000 at the time. They have really strong values carried through generations. 
And I actually learned something fun fact about um, the Cree name for women is Isquiao, which means the fire keeper, the keepers of the culture. Oh, that's cool. And so if you made a promise to a woman in that culture, you better keep your promise is basically Mm. like Mm. what, (laughs) what they're saying. But this was especially true within families. So like within generations, making a promise to someone, a daughter, a mother, grandmother, what have you, was was really important to keep it. So Violet Suse had been looking for her aunt since she was in her early 20s. So around this time, um, Violet Suse starts to talk about her aunt, Aunt Shirley. Aunt Shirley was a lighthearted, gentle, free spirit who loved to laugh and cared deeply about her mom. She was a residential school survivor. We'll talk about that in a second. Mm -hmm. And her first job was catering for the city of Edmonton. Yeah. She was always smiling, always curious about the world, Violet said about her aunt. She was the only one that Violet would trust to comb her curly hair when she was young and always made her feel special. And she had a really close, loving relationship with her aunt Shirley. Mm Mm-hmm. Shirley Ann Suse was born on the Samson Cree Reserve in 1945. She was one of eight children. She was close with her mom. Her mom actually did a bunch of really beautiful beadwork. Mm. Um, and her dad had ranched along the river. She had helped her dad with cattle and horses when ranching and was a super hard worker. When her dad died when she was 14, it was really difficult for the family to manage the farm and ranch. Um, after his death, and um, she did attend residential schools. I know I mentioned that before. Um, I'm not going to get too far into that because that's a whole other topic, but um, they ultimately did more damage than good. Um, And while the educated indigenous children uh, were educated, uh, they were oftentimes victims of sexual abuse and assault um, and dealt with some pretty severe PTSD. Um, unfortunately, Shirley was one of the people that went through that, um, as did Violet. And there were some serious intergenerational traumas that were passed down throughout their family. Um, Violet's mom never hugged or kissed her kids and suffered from PTSD. Um, so this was something that was pretty prevalent within their family. Mm. There was no steady employment on the reserve when the times got tough. So a lot of people started to move outside of the reserve. So Shirley started to talk about wanting to go to Edmonton to get a job when she was 14. This is like in the early 1970s at this point. So in the early 1970s, as a lot of people started to move off the reserve to larger cities to make money and support their families, Shirley wanted to move off and do the same for her mom to take care of her mom financially since her dad had died. So she moved to Vancouver, Canada. Violet was 11 when Shirley left the reserve. Okay. When Shirley moved to Vancouver, she got married to a man, had two sons, but the marriage didn't last, unfortunately. Um, It it just was a very bad situation, and the sons were taken um, to foster homes. Mm. And Shirley ended up on the street, and she never got to see her boys ever again after Mm. that point in time. She had turned to alcohol and drug abuse. 
Um, she would occasionally come back to visit her family in Canada. In 1975, she was at a dance that the family uh, attended. I guess they had these regular dances, and it was noted that she was acting odd. Hmm. She wouldn't dance, didn't move, didn't blink. It, she was off. So m- likely drug abuse. Um, when Shirley's brother, Violet's dad, died, she came back for the funeral but told Violet she wasn't coming back again now that her brother had died. Yeah. Um, but she might go to Seattle to visit some friends. Seattle. Hmm. It all comes back to Seattle. Shirley's mother used to say in Cree, you should stay in one place now because nobody will know you. Violet suggested that she get tattoos with the name Shirley. And Shirley said maybe she would. Violet would say that it was almost her mother's premonition that something would happen to Shirley. Mm. She was known for always sending letters, like birthday cards, holiday cards, to her mom. And in December 1979, her mom didn't receive a holiday card. In March 1980, she didn't receive a birthday card either. And that's when her mom started to be suspicious that something might be wrong. Something Mm. might have happened to Shirley. So in 1981... Shirley's mom, Violet's grandmother, asked Violet and her Aunt Belle to look for Shirley and, quote, find her, bring her home, end quote. So 1981, Violet wants to help. She goes to the local police, asks for some help to find her aunt, and she is told, quote, oh, probably just another dead Indian, end Mm. quote. Violet said, quote, we were looked at as if we were nothing, you know, end quote. Hmm. I can't even imagine trying to get help and having that kind of response. It was a rude awakening for Violet. She thought she would at least get some kind of help to look for her aunt. It didn't stop her from searching, even though she was going to be the one to have to do it herself. Sure. So she and her Aunt Belle would take trips to Vancouver Just to give you some perspective of distance, it was a 12-hour direct drive from where she lived. Mm. And they wouldn't make any stops because that would cost money and take time away from searching. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a huge city. Vancouver was massive compared to what they were used to in their small little town. And Mm. so I think, you know, when they had the idea that they were going to go look for her, it wasn't as daunting as it actually ended up being once they got there. They didn't know where to start who to talk to. They didn't even know it was safe. Like, these are two younger girls at this point, right? Like, teens of 20s. I mean, I don't know about you. I was pretty reckless when I was, like, 20 and thought nothing could ever happen to me, no matter how stupid I am or what I do. (laughs) Not to say they were. But you just have a different headspace when you're that age. No, it's true. So they would approach specifically indigenous looking people and like listen to languages that people were talking. And if they heard anyone speaking Cree, they would address them um, asking if they had seen Shirley show pictures. They even searched hostels and hospitals. Mm. No luck. It was really heartbreaking for Violet to not bring back anything to the matriarch of the family who she made this promise to, to her grandma that she would bring home her aunt and this is, uh, uh, there's a scene in one of the, the shows I was talking about where it's so heartbreaking to hear Violet talk about this. Um, she says of her grandmother, quote, she would just shut her lights off and sit in the dark 
Mm. And I know she was crying. Mm. Just so heartbreaking, right? Hmm. After 10 years of searching, Violet assumed that Shirley was dead. She would visit cemeteries in Vancouver and look on every single tombstone for Shirley's name. Jeez. I can't even fathom. Like, that's so rough. In about 1991, her grandmother started to decline health-wise. She had Alzheimer's, and she passed away in 1992. Yeah. But Violet didn't give up. She tracked down both of her cousins, the brothers, um, Mm -hmm. Shirley's sons, in 2006, and one of them returned to live on the reserve. Um, Violet said, I spoke with him yesterday, and he thanked me for a whole lifetime of looking for his mother, end quote. Mm -hmm. In 2011, Belle passed away, and it was then up to Violet to carry out the legacy of looking for her aunt. After years of searching for her aunt, the promise she had made to her grandmother started to weigh really heavily on, on, on Violet. She was getting older, and she had doubts that she would ever actually find out what happened to her aunt. Mm. In the early 2000s, Violet started doing research online. She started to look at obituaries and tried looking into police enforcement websites for case files, but she didn't have access to them. I think we can relate to that whenever we mm. search stuff. Like, you, you can only get so far until you have permission to, or clearance to access that type of information. It's true. Or you know somebody who does. <laughs> Kim stays <laughs> quiet and giggles. Um, true. She would look into missing persons cases. Uh, most of them were actually non-Indigenous because they didn't list Indigenous mm. missing cases. Oh, that's just... Mm. Gross. It, yeah, gro- no, that's the best word for it. It's gross. Gross. It's absolutely gross. Indigenous women go missing and murdered on a weekly basis with cases closed super quickly, if at all. Um, so just to give some context... A lot of that's what was happening in Violet's world while everything else was also happening. So I don't know about you, but I know that I I love uh, doing too many things at once and saying yes to everything (laughs) all the time. I think you know that's true of me, too. (laughs) And that's why we require coffee so we can get things done. But then it is sometimes Mm -hmm. often all the time backfires on us. Yeah, no, my problem with coffee is, uh, I mean, like, I love it. I drink too much of it. But if I drink coffee past a certain point in the day, then I'm up all night. Yeah. So then I'm tired because I don't sleep. So I have to drink more coffee. So then I'm up all night and it becomes. But I relate. I I feel like I tend to drink more coffee to try to get more done. And then I just get so shaky and jittery that I can't function and my anxiety goes to the roof and then like nothing gets done. So productivity is a challenge when you sign up for too many things. Um, (laughs) So I think, you know, in the sake of efficacy, (laughs) we try to find a better way. Well, we actually had the opportunity to try a product called Magic Mind. And What's so cool is like, they're just, they're little, these little tiny bottles. And I loved that I could just wake up, go to my fridge and take it. Yep. And it was so quick and it's so easy. I'm not preparing anything. I'm not having to run out to get, to get more coffee. Uh, It was just this, this tiny little bottle in my fridge. Nice. And you can drink it with or without coffee Mm -hmm. too, which Mm -hmm. is kind of cool. I know we took it for like a week Mm -hmm. um, and I noticed the difference pretty immediately. I know that it's like the longer you take it, the more the effects show. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Um, yeah. But for me, I found that pretty immediately I was able to see 
I was way more productive, less stressed, more focused. Mm -hmm. I have a tendency to get distracted when I'm in the middle of a project. Didn't happen as much when I was doing this, which was kind of nice. Less stress, less anxiety. Big goal of life. It's got some (laughs) nootropics in it um, Mm -hmm. to help you stay focused, relaxed, flow state of mind. But also, I know one of your favorite ingredients, matcha. Matcha. I love matcha. I love matcha so much. Anytime I see that it's in something, I get like weirdly excited. So (laughs) It's so good. And it has... uh, L-theanine in it that reduces stress, which is really cool and allows you to just, you know, have a more natural approach to caffeine. Uh uh And I know I've actually referred it to a lot of people that I work with because we are all workaholics and like to get stuff done. (laughs) And so, hey, if we can be more effective in what we do. Let's do it. It's a good. It's a good product for ghost hunters. It is. We, you know, yeah, it's perfect for ghost hunting. And having said that, <laughs> <laughs> so Magic Mind has graciously given us the opportunity to uh, share a deal with our listeners. So if you go to MagicMind.co/slash/ghoulish-tendencies, you can get up to fifty-six percent off your first subscription order if you order in the next ten days, or twenty percent off a one-time purchase if you. Use the code Ghoulish20. Now, fast forward to 2008. April 25th, 2008, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, as I know, so so random. Uh, he was actually governor at this time, so there's a reason I'm oh, talking that's about right. him. Not yeah, just I was like, like, I forget that. The governor. Um, Governator. Yeah, he had a Proposition 69 that was passed in California. I actually didn't realize that he did this. I learned something new today. There you go. <laughs> when I researched this, um, what this passed was basically the mandatory collection of every convicted felon's DNA to help solve unsolved cases through DNA. Um, and since that had started in California at that time, Four to five unsolved cases were solved per day when that started mm. happening, which is like that's bonkers, mind blowing. Yeah, that's that's crazy, but like kind of cool. No, it's awesome. I'm just like, oh man, yeah, technology, technology, and this is where things are going to start to get a little, feel a little bit better. Okay, so I know I've made you feel real. Horrible hmm. and awful um, at this point in time, which is, you know, normally, Kim, what you do, but you're welcome. It's usually this my is... job. Aww. Cheers. We both can do it. Um, enter Steve Rhodes. Steve Rhodes was a cold case detective for Ventura County for the district attorney's office and um, worked both of these cases once he joined the cold case unit. He originally started off as a policeman in Ventura County and then became a detective uh, in property crimes and then went on to homicide. He retired in 2012, but came back to be a part of the cold case unit. Specifically, he spoke to wanting to be a voice for the victims and wanting to help families solve crimes. Um, And I, I think, you know, you see a side of detectives when you hear them talk about victims in a way mm-hmm. that I don't think is really translated through text and on both of these he was in both of these documentaries and I mad respect for for Steve Rhodes so just want to throw that out there so he specifically said that anytime he was faced with a case with DNA he would take it he said you cannot dispute DNA evidence you just can't 
In 2011, Steve Rhodes takes over Kern County Cold Case Unit and takes on the Kern County Jane Doe case. So he submits both um, rape kits from the Kern County and Ventura County to CODIS for a DNA match. Mm. And when this happens, in 2013, CODIS matches on Jane Doe Ventura links to a dude named Wilson Chuist. Mm. And through this hit is how they connected it to um, the Kern County Jane Doe because his DNA was on both of them. So let's talk about this piece of shit. Uh-huh. Wilson Chuist was a convicted serial rapist, originally from Louisiana. He was a U.S. veteran kicked out of the Army due to drug abuse, uh-huh. settled in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. Hey, guess where I'm from? <laughs> Is it Los Angeles, Gabby? San Fernando Valley, baby. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it, like, makes me pissed off that he's from that area because, like, don't give us a bad name. Uh, anyway, he kidnapped and raped a woman in L.A. in 1977 and left her for dead and was sentenced for two years or to two years in state prison Jeez. after that. Can we can we take a moment to appreciate that if it was, like, a drug charge, it probably would have been longer. But, like, almost murdering somebody, kidnapping them, all that jazz. Right. Like, yeah, that's that's, that's <clears throat> eh, two years. That's enough. Two years. NBD. Oh, the 70s. Um, <laughs> Just the 70s? All the Just time. Just the 70s. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> um, in June 1980, he gets paroled, moves to Kings County, and he commits two additional rapes in August and September 1980. <sighs> While he was in prison, though, he was required to provide DNA. Um, that's the DNA that matched mm. him to these Jane Doe cases. Yeah, it was. It gets wilder. So he does an interview in 2008 with Kern County Detectives, and Wilson mentions that he was living with a family named the Bells during the time that the two victims were murdered. In October 2013, Rhodes is looking up this dude and he looks up the area with the name bell couldn't find anybody cast the net larger wider looks in phone books and looks on the internet lands on ardmore oklahoma finds this bell family so he contacts the police there and asks the police to pay a visit to this family and ask them some questions so the detective asked the family if they remember a Wilson Chuist 33 years after the time that he had lived with them. You're going to lose your mind. Mm. Caroline Bell is itching to talk to Rhodes. Mm. That's a direct quote. She met Chuist in a pen pal program with prisoners. Mrs. Bell left town for a few days leaves Chuist in charge of her three boys as he's living in her house. Hmm. She gets home. They get into an argument. She kicks him out. They weren't getting along. After he's gone, she goes to use the vacuum, as Mm -hmm. one does. As one does. And her oldest son goes, no, 
Don't use it. It's full of blood. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> full of blood? Even I don't say that. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, that seems kind of problematic, right? So Yowza. she's got questions, as do we. So while she was away, Wilson disappeared for a day or two. Tells the kids he hit a deer and then it bled <laughs> all Sorry. over the place in the back of his car. Okay. The worst part? He made the kids clean up the blood. You know, this part's ringing a bell, too. Is it? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. It may have been from a... I can't remember if it's from a podcast or if it would have been. I don't think this was a detail that was in that news thing I saw. No, it wasn't, because <laughs> I found this elsewhere. Okay. Yeah, that <clears throat> that that specifically, I'm like, I, I, I've heard that story before. Because, yeah, that's... There's more. <laughs> there's more. But wait... There's more. But wait, there's more. So Rhodes meets up with Caroline because he's like, I got to see it to believe it. I need to go talk to these people. So Mm -hmm. he goes to her and she's with her youngest son, Scott. And Scott says to Rhodes, is it because of the woman that he killed in Bakersfield? (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) what? I said that right as he took a big <laughs> sip of you, a beverage. You did. I was just, I was trying to not do an actual spit take onto my microphone. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so of course, then Rhodes has questions. Uh, yeah, as do we. And we he all then, have questions. <laughs> so Scott then tells a story about about this dude picking up a woman at a bar and taking her out to the country and killing her, that Chewis told Scott he dumped the body in the middle of nowhere. So, okay, this is pretty significant. Long story short, uh, Chewis is convicted of these rapes and was serving a, a life sentence at the time that he was linked to his unidentified victims. So he is fully linked. And now there's even more evidence to point that he did what he did. So in September, on September 23rd, 2015 in Corcoran, California, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Um, (laughs) This is 35 years after the Jane Doe's were discovered. Mm -hmm. Rhodes goes straight to Chewist. He's like, I need to interview this, this dude. Shows him a ton of cases. Also, just this part of the documentary was so awesome to watch because they had the film footage of this and you could see it happen in real time. So, like, mm-hmm. highly recommend watching it. He interviews Chewist, shows him a bunch of different cases that he could have potentially been connected to but wasn't. Sure. Asks, hey, did you have anything to do with these cases? And he goes, no, I was incarcerated at the time. I couldn't have done it. And then Rhodes brings up the Westlake High School case, saying it was just off the 101 highway. So for those of you who are not local to Southern California, or I mean, haven't visited the Hollywood area ever, or Los Angeles area ever, or driven in Los (laughs) Angeles ever, um, the 101 is a main artery highway. It is You have to take it to get from one end of the San Fernando Valley to the other. It takes you from like Hollywood to 
Woodland Hills to Calabasas to, you know, Agora, Westlake, Thousand Oaks, um, Oxnard. I'm just going to go down the line. Uh, Ventura, (laughs) Santa Barbara, right? Like it, it goes, it goes on and on. You cannot live in that area and not know what the 101 is. You just can't. Like okay. there's, there's no way. Um, it's like being in Seattle and not knowing what the five is like, mm, okay, you fair. can't, you just can't. Um, and that's me making note that I am from California. Cause I said the, anyway, um, <laughs> Chewis claims that he doesn't even know where the one Oh one is. I'm sorry. What? He lived his whole life in the San Fernando Valley. lying, fully lying. Hmm. And so guess who's stoked? Rhodes. Rhodes is like, oh, caught him. Caught him in like the stupidest lie. Like, Mm -hmm. you dummy. What a dummy. Hmm. So Rhodes tells Chewis that his DNA is under the nails and underpants of this woman that was found murdered Hmm. in the Westlake High parking lot. Mm-hmm. He then tells him that his DNA is also in Jane Doe Kern County's underwear. Chewis denies it, refuses to give any information about the slayings. Mm-hmm. He then brings up Scott Bell and the blood <laughs> vacuum. I mean. <laughs> Still denies. Denies, denies, Jeez. denies. So the case was taken to the DA, John Barrick, in... Um, the Ventura Ventura County DA. Mm -hmm. And to him, the DNA was the key. It was like, if if you've got DNA, it's the best proof. So he takes it on. On May 18, 2018, the trial begins. It takes a month. John Barrick acts as the prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And the main evidence was the DNA found in the fingernails at the Ventura County and the DNA on the beer bottle found at Kern County. In July 2018, almost 40 years after the murders, Wilson Chewis was sentenced to life without possibility of parole. So, I mean, he was already incarcerated, but at least they know for sure this guy did it. So this is probably when you saw the news in 2018. Yeah, that would track with with what I'm remembering is is, um, the news story, I think, was was in conjuncture with with his um, conviction and... uh, and, and wanting to identify the Jane Doe's. Yeah. So we still don't know who they are, though, right? Yeah. No, no. That at least, I mean. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> We're getting Unless there. that's changed. Yeah. So at this point, Rhodes and Barrick decide they're going to go pay Chewis to visit and try to figure out who these women were. Uh-huh. Um, the only thing that they get out of Chewis was that. For the Kern County Jane Doe, he picked her up at a bar in Hanford, but didn't Mm. know who she was. Mm -hmm. And for the Ventura Jane Doe, he said that he didn't know who she was, but she was hiking in Visalia. Mm. That's it. He didn't give any other details. Jeez. So not having any family of either victim in the courtroom was weird. Um, Some people thought it it would work against the case to not have family there, but it actually made the jurors care more about the case. One even said that, quote, we have to be their family. We have to be their voice and see this to the end, end quote, Mm -hmm. which I just thought was like so endearing. Yeah. So in 2016, uh, Rhodes was assigned to the Golden State Killer Task Force. (laughs) 
Y'all know who that is. Mm-hmm. We all know what happened with the Golden State Killer <laughs> yes, as of we did. late and how that all unfolded. So this is before that happened. This is 2016. One of the investigators on the case actually suggested genetic genealogy to Rhodes for the Jane Doe cases. Hmm. So in 2017, the DNA Doe Project started. Have you heard of the DNA Doe Project, Kim? I am. I'm familiar with the DNA Doe Project. They do great work. They do. They do incredible work. They are, and for those of you who don't know, they are a nonprofit working with law enforcement agencies to identify John and Jane Doe's Mm -hmm. via um, DNA and investigative genetic genealogy. For the sake of people who don't know what genetic genealogy is, I will just explain. It is the use of genealogical DNA tests, um, like DNA profiling and DNA testing in combination with traditional genealogical methods to infer genetic relationships between individuals. Meaning you could have a distant cousin Mm -hmm. that gives DNA and connect it to somebody who killed somebody else whose DNA was found on a dead body. Like it's nuts what technology can do. Mm -hmm. Um, This is how they identified D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer. Mm -hmm. So Rhodes took that idea and applied it to Jane Doe Kern. Now, no actual specimen survived since 1980 um, from that case, but they still had the clothing um, that she wore. Mm -hmm. It was degraded, but they actually were able to come up with some DNA off her clothing Mm. after, like, scraping extra hard during this time. Uh, Gina Rather was a volunteer for the DNA Doe Project. She was uh, the one who volunteered to work on this case and found that they had 19 visible matches to the DNA and identified the victim's ethnicity right away. Hmm. She said that uh, this woman was most likely indigenous, Mm -hmm. not Hispanic. She was 64% Amerindian, 14% Arctic. Uh, Gina started researching indigenous Facebook groups, started posting pictures of what they thought Kern County Jane Doe looked like, hoping to get a hit, hoping someone might recognize this person. Yeah. In September 2019, there was a new match at GED uh, within a second cousin range. Uh, Only one great grandparent was indigenous, and they identified the great grandfather as living in the Masquachis. I said it right. Yes. Masquachis uh, area in Canada, mm. which brings us to our friend Violet, mm-hmm. who's from that area. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't get too excited. We're going to get there in a sec. OK. So basically, February 2020. This is so recent. It's like nuts how recent a lot of yeah, this is. It really is. They posted one more time because they hadn't gotten a bite even since then, even since getting more like hints that this could be an indigenous person from a specific area. Nobody was stepping up and saying anything. They posted again, asking if anybody knew her in the eighties, didn't get anything, Hmm. but Violet, our friend, Violet Suse, who's Mm -hmm. still looking for her aunt Mm -hmm. becomes obsessed with true crime shows. Bless you, Violet. I relate. Um, Mm -hmm. She followed the entire storyline of the golden state killer. And was like, they should do that for my aunt. Yeah. Basically, like, she, she like, saw the lateral connection there. Mm-hmm. And so she volunteers to donate her DNA and to get it 
like out there in the system. So she puts her information on Ancestry.com in hopes that something will pop up, but it kind of stops there. Mm-hmm. She goes to a women's conference in 2020, talks about her aunt, Shirley, at this women's conference. And just a couple of days later, she sees a Facebook post, an unidentified Masquatchies woman murdered in Kern County, California, looking to be identified, posted by Gina Rather at the DNA Doe Project, because someone at the conference told her to check out this Facebook group. And Violet reaches out to Gina Rather at the DNA Doe Project, says she thinks this woman is her Aunt Shirley. Hmm. The circumstances are the same. They lined up. The real test was a DNA match, right? Mm -hmm. Was it a match? Was it not? So Gina tells her how to upload her DNA to GED Match. She uploads it. Gina gives her a call and says, Violet, this is your aunt. It was Mm. a match. Jeez. That's got to (laughs) be feelings. Violet had the most raw emotional response Mm. on the phone. Like no words, just like Mm -hmm. sounds, right? She said in her interview, she was laughing, she was screaming, she was crying. Like, I can, you can only imagine what she's going through. Yeah. But it's nuts. Nuts how this was put together, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. And it was so sad for Violet to find out how her aunt died, but the relief that she found that she had an answer to what happened to her aunt yeah. was amazing. And she finally, they finally identified the Kern County Jane Doe as Shirley Ann Suisay on April 23rd, 2021. Mm. Steve Rhodes directly reached out to Violet. They bonded over his passion for being in Shirley's corner. And Violet finally felt like she wasn't alone, even though her family members had passed and she was the only one still left looking for her aunt. She realized that there were other people still wanting to help and find out who she was. In July 2021, Violet, her sister, her daughter, and her niece traveled to the local elders in Bakersfield, California, and did a ceremony for Shirley. In May of 2022, Shirley Suse's remains were flown from California to Alberta for a proper burial at her family's resting place in Riverside Cemetery. Uh, Violet Suse said to CBC News, once that is complete, I know the weight of the world will be off my shoulders. Mm. A group of 20 to 30 motorcycle riders wearing clothing, uh, paying tribute to missing and murdered indigenous women, mostly red, accompanied the body during the journey from (sighs) Wetaskiwin to Masquatchis. I did it. (laughs) Um, After Suse's story aired on a recent episode of uh, Annie's Cold Case Files, which I watched, which you can find. It's kind of hard to find. It's on uh, Prime. You can have to look it up there. Um, She received a bunch of messages from people in Canada and the U.S. hoping to find their loved ones Mm. with hope that if she could do it, they could do it, too. And she still encourages people to actually, like, get involved in the DNA research realm, like, train for how to figure that out and, like get involved don't just have your dna tested but like get involved in it Mm -hmm. um, so they can conduct their own forensic investigations and she said that is the hope i want to give to people in similar situations as mine jane doe ventura county still remains unidentified steve rhodes is still searching Uh, the dna doe project figured out that she was of guatemalan descent 
um, mm. was probably in the New Mexico area and might have had ties to the Los Angeles area. But uh, Ventura County Jane Doe still remains Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. We don't know who she is. We do know who killed her. We do know who killed Shirley Suisei. We know that Shirley Suisei is Kern County Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. And this is a wild story. It really I is. I thought it would be a great topic for us. What do you think? No, I think it, I think very much so. And I will say, um, and we've, we've, covered a couple of cases that that have um had breakthroughs more recently because of DNA. Mm-hmm. I think about our yeah. our murders in Tacoma at the Point Defiance Park. I think yep. about our our Lady of the Dunes um yep. which, which is soon. which we are we are planning on updating within the next few episodes because that's taking some bonkers turns that I've gone down some rabbit holes, Gabby. I've gone down some rabbit holes. I can't wait. Uh but how important the DNA work that's being done right now um, and and how remarkable it is that just really, I mean, I'd venture to say like the last five to ten years, the advances they've made incorporating in all of this geneolo- genealogical, ha, words are hard, genealogical uh, ancestry information, how crucial that's been and how important that's been. And it's 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 really remarkable. Uh, it's really remarkable. So yeah, hmm. yeah. I uh, I just felt like I had to share. I, I was so inspired by this story that um, it is tough to hear about the amount of women and indigenous women that are just dismissed. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And, and not acknowledged. And absolutely. I'm constantly baffled by the capabilities that everyday people have in solving murders. I think that was one of the things that really drew me to the Golden State Killer case when it was happening, like as it happened and getting the updates as it happened was nuts to go through. Yeah. But it's to your point, an ongoing thing like this can happen continuously and it's so wonderful that we have the ability to not just help but see it unfold but also just share awareness and create visibility for people that don't have the ability to do that for themselves Mm -hmm. so you know anyway really wonderfully told by um web of death on hulu which was my creepy critics corner uh (laughs) last week i think or the week before i don't remember i mentioned it at one point yeah um but uh yeah the uh, cold case files more recent one. It came out in 2022. Um, I just wanted to do a more recent topic that. Yeah, that, no, absolutely. Know. No, that's, uh, I, I, again, uh, an important one to bring attention to, particularly because not all the women have been identified. And not the best topic for Valentine's Day, but hey. Hey! <laughs> That's how we roll. That's um, how we roll. And if you want a more appropriate episode for Valentine's Day, go find our old one about oh, um, the ghost <laughs> marriage. So I um, married a ghost. So I married a ghost. That yeah. was a fun one. Yeah. But anyway, and this brings us to... Creepy Critics Corner! Creepy Critics Corner! 
can't. What you watching? <sighs> so many things, Gabby. So many things. Okay. Um, I'm going to kick this off by saying the other week I went to see Skinamarink in theaters. Oh, I heard you didn't like it. Let's let's break that down, shall we? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. Here's the thing. Um, it, it's I bring this one up. I don't usually bring stuff up that I didn't necessarily click with, partially because you know this is this is a a fun way to talk about things we like. Um, sure. But also, I I I try. I am trying to be a little more conscientious about how I speak about. Um, media that I don't enjoy because okay. art is subjective and sure. I, um, as a filmmaker, I appreciate anyone trying to create art. Um, sure. Skinnamarink, for those of you who have not heard of it, it, it's been kind of a big deal in the horror scene lately. It's a, a Canadian experimental horror film. It was made for like fifteen thousand dollars. Dang. That's yeah. Cheap. Yeah. No. It's it's super low budget, but um, it started uh, getting a bunch of attention uh, from. It was at a, a film festival, and I think it had gotten leaked, and so a bunch of people started talking about it. It's it's made. I think in theaters, it's made a couple million dollars, which is is substantial when your movie costs fifteen thousand to make. And it had a pretty yeah. limited release. Uh, it's now on Shutter streaming. I went to okay. see it in theaters because I I try very hard to see, especially horror films in theaters that are going to be notable. Sure. Uh, it's kind of a bonkers movie. Um, basically, these these kids who wake up at night and they can't find their dad. And that's basically the two hours of the movie. Uh, (laughs) And lots of lingering shots on corners of the ceiling. Um, It's become like one of the most talked about movies of the year so far in, again, in horror circles. And it's one of those situations where I went and saw, I went and saw it with, with a friend of mine and we're sitting next to each other and like, 25 minutes into the movie, I leaned over and I said, are we being punked? (laughs) And she said, I was wondering the same thing. Um, A lot of people have really enjoyed it. A lot of people find it terrifying. A lot of people have really connected to it. I was not one of those people. Okay. But I felt the need to speak on it because... um, I don't know. I'm kind of curious to talk to some of these people who are really, really digging it, finding it scary. Cause I I I want to watch the movie they watched and and I didn't it didn't connect with it but it, it I I'm I'm kind of curious to hear if if you're somebody if you're one of our listeners who's watched the movie let us know your thoughts on it let us know if you liked it if you didn't like it um what you liked about it what you didn't like about it if you're curious it's streaming on Shutter right now uh it's very interesting I think it's like a twenty minute short it would have been fantastic for me it was over long among other things. <laughs> But yeah, so I watched that, and that was that happened. Um, <laughs> That's one way to put it. It's it was it was two hours, man. It was like two hours of my life. Long time. It was a long time. Uh, I have also joined the bandwagon. I've been watching The Last of Us. Oh, I want to watch it. I haven't seen it yet. It's really good. Episode three left me emotionally devastated. 
um, in a good way, but also, I'm not going to lie, I cried like a little babe. <laughs> uh, it left me with a lot of queer feels, let me tell you. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's based on a video game, which I've never played and I wasn't super familiar with. So mm-hmm. I've gone into this blind. Um, I don't have any preconceived notions about it. It's, it's kind of a, a post-apocalyptic world. There's been... It's they're zombies, but they're not zombies. It's a fungal, it's a fungus. And and I so heard. Yeah. So it's 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 really interesting because it's also weirdly believable. Well, um, I heard the fungus is like a real thing. Yeah. Like it's an actual fungus. It's it's I mean, it's it's fascinating. Uh the premise of it and um Pedro Pascal who <laughs> Love him. Yes. Love him. Is is uh one of the, the principals and he um is basically tasked with taking this this girl um with this kind of resistance or you know, resistance league and, and protecting her and taking her to to take going on this journey with her. And uh yeah, it's it's there's just four episodes in at the time of this recording, but man, I'm I'm hooked. It's you have this kick-ass cast. Like every actor in this is so well cast. The actor playing um, the girl. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the. No, I'm having to look up the 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 actor's name because I know they were in. Um, Ellie is the character's name, but the actor was in Game of Thrones. Oh, uh, Bella Ramsey, and they're they're fantastic. Uh, they uh, they were in Game of Thrones as the like weird little awesome uh, clan of the North, like one of the leaders of the. Even though they were only like a kid, and and they were in Catherine called Birdie, which was a really fun movie. Uh, they're they're a really fantastic actors. So like they're and they have a nice chemistry. with Pedro Pascal is like a father daughter dynamic, and not you know, uh, not like a Leonardo DiCaprio dynamic. Um, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was that inappropriate? So is Leonardo DiCaprio. I said it. Uh, that like literally breaks my 13 year old heart. Okay, here's here the meme, I know we don't the, need to go down that no, hole. But the meme going around today is because Bella Ramsey is the same age as Leo's current girlfriend. So that's part of where Woof. I'm I'm throwing that out there. Anyway, no, it's it's really really good. Uh, it's on HBO. Um, or HBO Max. I don't know, one of those. I, I get it through It's cable. on HBO. HBO Max. It's, there we go. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's 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 I've been I've I, I actually I'm I'm impressed. I've started tracking what I've said uh for Creepy Critics Corner, and this is making my life so much easier because I can oh, just so add smart. to the list and then I'm I'm when I've seen it or when I'm talking about it, I'm moving it to the you have now spoken of this list. So as to not play that game of crap, did I talk about this already? I guess. You're such a smart cookie. It took me how many years to like make a list? But yeah, Three. I have my moments. Three. <laughs> Three years to be like, oh, I should write this down. Hey. All hey. right. What have you been watching, Gabby? That's okay. You learned. Um, okay. So I have been told by numerous people for a long time to see Knives Out. And oh, yeah. Yeah. I had time. never seen it. I don't even know if we ever talked about it on Creepy Critics Corner because it literally came out in 2019. So like it it came out and there was a lot. It was near the end of the. Was it near the end of the year? 
movie? I don't remember. I don't remember. I just know I didn't see it. Okay. Terrence and I have been talking about wanting to see it forever. Yeah. And then Glass Onion came out, and everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, you got to see Glass, Glass Onion. Onion but we funny. hadn't I seen my folks. either. Um, so we made a point to watch both. Okay. And so we watched them pretty back to back, which was actually kind of fun to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just some like ridiculous acting in it. And there like, is yeah. all of it. Uh, but also just, I think I was more like starstruck by the casts in both. Yeah. Um, Fantastic. Uh, both movies. So I just, I thought it was so well done. I really enjoyed for both of them, like the twists and turns. And it's like updated Agatha Christie too, which oh, is always fun. For sure. Yeah. And I love the, the like references to Clue. Yes. <laughs> in absolutely. Glass it also, was very funny to me. I like that, that Benoit is now like canonically queer. That's chef's kiss. Yeah. It, it's um, pretty good. I love that Daniel Craig has a Southern accent and... The acting is just great, to be honest. Um, the characters are also just very entertaining. Uh, and, yeah, I thought it was – they were both very good. I don't know why I waited so long to see either of them. They were both great, but I'm yeah. kind of glad I watched them back to back. Outside of that, I watched the things that I mentioned for this episode, mm-hmm. Love of Death on Hulu. Episode 4 is the one with reference to this topic, as well as the Cold Case Files episode. Um from 2022 don't ask me which one it is i'll put it in the show notes um but yeah that's what i've been watching and having said that we have new patreon stuff we've talked about it on a couple of our other episodes um there's some fun stuff we've been talking about on our ghoul side chats we are now releasing them as we record them so that the current events are current (laughs) and not late Um, but yeah, if you are not contributing, uh, to the Patreon, you should, because you get extra content, you You get bloopers, you get ghoul side chats, depending on what level of contribution you would like. Um, and you get some video, like edited video of us talking during our episode. (laughs) If you want to watch it versus listen to it. And sometimes there's fun little Easter eggs. Oh, yeah, and dogs and cats and all kinds of fun sirens. Um, But, yeah, check us out on our Patreon. If you haven't contributed already, please join there. Um, And if you like what we do, let us know. Give us a rating, review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and find us anywhere uh, you have social medias on Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and stay. stay.